This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfcc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Uh, well, good morning, uh, everyone. So nice to join uh, you in, uh, uh, I'm further south from you in Los Angeles, but uh, very nice to join you uh, by this uh, method. Uh, I believe I, last time I visited San Francisco Zen Center was uh, when uh, the book American Sutra first came out in 2019, uh, what uh, Koto mentioned. And so uh, I'm glad to join you now and uh, see some old uh, friends uh, uh, on, the, on the video. And uh, well, I'd like to uh, today give some kind of uh, uh, talk, Dharma talk or Dharma message that uh, uh, well relates to some things that uh, I'm working on around a, a Buddhist monument uh, right now. And uh, usually, you know, sometimes I give, uh, I get the guidance of like, everyone is right now studying, like a couple of weeks ago, uh, Green Gulch asked me to see, and they were like, everybody's studying Sandokai, so you should say something. So I did something like that. But gave me very a lot of freedom with, uh, to say whatever <laughs> I want. So today, if you don't mind, I'm going to share with you some things that are on my mind and alive for me in my uh, thinking and practice of Buddhism. And uh, it's, it's, it has to something to do with uh, building this monument. And I want to use that as a way to um, reflect on uh, ancestors, reflect on uh, uh, these days we've been calling it karma of a nation, but like a, the kind of racial history of, of uh, United States of America. And then thinking about how to repair some of the hurt and uh, uh, damages of, of, uh, of you know, racialized uh, violence and so forth and exclusions and, and that kind of thing. So. I want to uh, share with you, if it's okay, a slide uh, uh, PowerPoint, and then from there, uh, 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 be able to, to talk you through this uh, up until I think 11 a.m. So uh, I don't know if, you know, I, I think some of you I, I have, I've seen uh, come to my temple in, in LA, uh, in Little Tokyo, uh, as a huge temple, since your Soto mission. And, and uh, uh, so some of you, I think, will know the person in this photograph, uh, Reverend uh, uh, Kenko Yamashita. Uh, he was a former, uh, I believe he was a eighth, uh, no, I'm sorry, 10th uh, abbot of our temple. And uh, uh, next year, we're celebrating uh, Centennial, so 100 years. And then, uh, he was a 10th one, abbot, and an 8th kaikyo fukyo sokan, so the bishop, bishop of North America, Soto Zen Buddhism. And so he served, uh, some of the maybe older members of your temple will know uh, him, and, and he served as uh, Zenshuji and uh, served as bishop uh, uh, late 1960s into the late 1980s, uh, which is, I was a college student at that time, and I got to know him uh, uh, maybe two years before I became ordained. But I, I want to start with him because of our connection as Soto Zen Buddhist people. And, and uh, we have a little bit different, of course, uh, 
lineage of people, but we are like cousins. So I wanted to mention, you know, uh, uh, Reverend Yamashita and um, uh, uh, how should we say, he, there's a little text in the top there. It's hard to read in Japanese, but, the, but it's basically uh, his memoir. And when I first met him, I asked him a little bit about his history with the temple and also with the Japanese American community since the uh, Zenshuji is a historic, you know, Japanese American temple in uh, little Tokyo. And, and he mentioned something about the fact that during World War II, uh, he, like many other members of the community, uh, was put in some kind of uh, uh, internment camp. And that uh, uh, the temple suffered during that time and the many families were separated. And, and he makes a slight mention of this in the memoir, but it's a memoir called Donguri Korokoro. It just means like a, like a chestnut that is rolling down the hill kind of thing. And so it, he had a very kind of flippant way of talking about Oh, it wasn't such a bad thing, but you know, some members we experienced some hardships and so forth. And over the time, I came to learn that uh, when he was a young man like this, this is nineteen uh, photograph of him in like nineteen thirty nine or something like that. Uh, he uh, he, uh, so, you know, was at the Zenshuji Temple and also taught at the Riverside Japanese Language School. Uh, at that time, it's very common for our temples to also because the first generation people couldn't speak much English to have these language schools so that you know, the American born children could, could, could speak to, to their parents. So he was an instructor in Japanese language and culture as well as Buddhism. And uh, uh, this is him with his wife cross, you know, at the, on the Taiyomaru boat coming to the United States. And then the other photo is of him inside uh, the Santa Fe uh, internment camp in New Mexico. And uh, he, over time, told us a story about his time during the war, where his wife uh, was, uh, they, was pregnant, and, we, and they already had two small children, and then, uh, the, but one baby on the way when Pearl Harbor happened. And that uh, right after Pearl Harbor, a few weeks later, the FBI came to arrest both him and also his wife, because she was also teaching at the language school and uh, Buddhist priests and Japanese language school teachers were seen at that time in the United States by the government as a, like a threat to national security. And so the FBI came to arrest him. They had arrest warrants for both him and his wife. And uh, when, thankfully, the FBI agent in charge of the arrest had the warrant, but then he saw the two kids and he felt bad that if he took both the mom and the dad, the two children would, would have no parents. And then also she was pregnant. So he ripped up his wife's, the wife's uh, warrant of arrest and um, I took Reverend Yamashita just by himself. And if you come to Zenshuji today, or you know our temple and have had you know, tea ceremony there, you know that the head of the tea club at the temple is Hiromi Yamashita, the daughter, the one that was in the, you know, pregnant uh, uh, at the time of the Pearl Harbor. Uh, she was born in one of the camps uh, and she's now the head of our, our, our tea club. But uh, this is a type of temple, uh, you know, that I'm affiliated with. So I try to learn about our history and who came before us, all of our ancestors and who, 
is in our lineage. And so I wanted to share that little anecdote with you about, uh, uh, you know, we're like our cousin temples. So like inside of our Soto Zen lineage, we have this kind of uh, interesting uh, type of history uh, that is related to how in the United States, uh, sometimes uh, race as well as religion can be the ways in which uh, uh, some people are included or excluded or made, uh, you know, normal regular citizens or a kind of like second class citizens or and so forth. And so I wanted to just introduce that as a way to say the current, you know, this is a, the current abbot of, of uh, our temple, uh, Kojima Sensei, I think many of you know, uh, he drew this uh, picture about my book about what happened during back, back then in World War II. It's, it's a book called American Sutra about Buddhism and uh, both how Buddhism and being Asian American at that time was seen as uh, problematic in America and as grounds for arresting people, putting them in uh, different camps, but also how Buddhism was a kind of, you know, uh, repository, a refuge uh, for, for, from the teachings and practices and from Sangha community, how to, how to endure, persevere in, uh, in a moment when you lose your freedom or your life is disrupted. And so um, uh, I'm just going to reference briefly this uh, historical moment about the different camps that people went to. Reverend Yamashita went to a whole bunch of them, the one in Santa Fe in New Mexico. And eventually he reunites with his family in a place called Crystal City in, uh, in Texas, where it was called the Crystal City Family Reunification Camp. But it was one of the places that uh, these you know, families that have been separated were able to come together, still behind barbed wire with armed guards, but at least they're together again. And so uh, I wanted to um, just say a quick word about why uh, uh, people, our temple, you know, and other temples vandalized during World War II, uh, why people were, uh, uh, you know, picked up and why temples had been under surveillance. I just wanted to mention that, you know, the very first person right after Pearl Harbor, even before the smoke had cleared, you know, after the attack on December, uh, 7th, 19th, uh, 41, uh, the first person picked up was a, uh, you know, Hompa Honganji Buddhist priest, head of the main Hawaii Hompa uh, Honganji uh, temple in Honolulu. And the second person picked up was uh, Taiheiji, Soto Zen temple Buddhist priest. And here you see Reverend uh, Asayadai getting picked up uh, from the Liliha, uh, Shingon mission in, in Liliha Street in, in, in Honolulu. And so, how should we say, somehow, Buddhist priests, uh, we, we were considered somehow danger to the nation. And we were on these lists. Uh, for example, Reverend Miyamoto, you can see his uh, FBI case file uh, uh, form where he's uh, clearly marked as uh, being picked up on December 8th. And then he's in group A, individuals believed to be most dangerous, who in all probability should be interned in the event of war. The, the Buddhist priest as a category of person was deemed a just a, like a threat to national security. And uh, arrest, this is his arrest warrant and, and he's getting picked up. But uh, uh, where does this come from? And uh, so I wanna move into this idea that uh, 
you know, recently we've had an, at our neighbor temple, uh, Higashongan's temple, also a little Tokyo a kind of vandalism. And uh, we have been hearing about the kind of anti-Asian animus and violence and vandalism, things like this happening over the last year and some. Uh, but this is not new. And I just wanted to make a note that the Buddhist people from the very beginning of American Buddhism, uh, before Japanese people were Chinese people, and they formed the first temples and communities, sanghas around the country. And uh, uh, they were also seen as a threat. Uh, because in San Francisco, I think you'll find it kind of amusing. But like, for example, this pamphlet from 1873, uh, talking about uh, the fear of uh, establishment of a heathen Chinese despotism in San Francisco uh, and warnings about a Chinese invasion. There are so many migrants coming and the need in Harper's Weekly uh, in this illustration to build a Chinese wall symbolically on the Pacific to keep a certain people out because of their not just racial difference, but the fact that they're heathen or not Christian. So the assumption that I think Buddhist people uh, have, have tried to, and including Reverend Yamashita was trying to handle in his times was, and I feel like it may be even an enduring problem today, is that there's a generalized notion of America as a white Christian nation, uh, one that the norm or the uh, standard is uh, one of being white and being, and being Christian is normal and that if you are neither religiously or racially that somehow uh, you're un-American if not anti-American in this uh, set of images I think you can see what I'm trying to get at that conflation of race and religion that has long been a part of our nation's thinking about how we understand belonging citizenship and so forth. Here, you know, on the right, is literally the term was the yellow peril, this kind of mass of Asians coming over. And here it's symbolized, right, by the, by the Buddha appearing in those dark, ominous clouds approaching a land of illumination, a land illuminated by the Christian cross, and this idea of a threat uh, that is coming from the yellow peoples or the Asian peoples. And in during World War II itself, that same you know, thematic in another different popular magazine, um, you can see this you know, militarized tank with the Buddha on top of it and a samurai figure in the back, that kind of idea of the Japanese and Buddhism and, the, and kind of military attack uh, all kind of coming together. And I think when I talk to my Muslim American friends, uh, especially post 9-11, they also get conflated that way of like somehow their religion is somehow linked to some kind of threat to national security. And it's all kind of lumped together in these kind of large groupings of, of masses of people that are somehow very dangerous. And so I wanted to offer a different vision or different way to think about America that is one about multiplicity, that is about hybridity, uh, so multiplicity instead of singularity or and hybridity instead of purity, because usually the reason why 
And by the way, it's not just you know the United States, but Buddhists engage in this kind of thing too sometimes. I think we all know about the case of Myanmar and how you know there are political parties there uh, literally titled the party for the protection of race and religion, meaning the Burmese people and their Buddhism against the Rohingya people who are Muslim. And somehow the idea of like some kind of need to protect some monolithic singular, not only race, but also peoples in this kind of supremacy. You know, you can find it in Modi's international, like it's not, it's not limited to the United States. So, but in the United States, there have always been some voices of people who've had an alternate view of what is America and what America aspires to be. And so when the Chinese were being excluded, and of course, you may all know that in 1881, there was the first federal immigration law that says certain people shouldn't be here because of their race and their religion. The, the, the slur word used was the heathen chini, this kind of un, un, religiously unacceptable and racially unassimilable group to which somebody like Frederick Douglass in his famous 1869 speech in Boston, sometimes called the composite nation speech, gives a very strong articulation of and vision of a nation that is composed, is, has, has a kind of, kind of composite nature or hybrid nature, that one, one that is uh, 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 multiple uh, uh, in its makeup of race, ethnicity, creed. And it's a different vision of America, one that is multi-ethnic in nature and two, you know, religiously plural, uh, in fact, being inspired by religious, you know, freedom. Uh, requires plurality as opposed to singularity. And so Douglas made a really important uh, 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 case for inclusion of Asian Americans. He also made a point about immigration to America uh, that had to do with himself as a formerly enslaved person. He, you know, he became known as a great orator and, and thinker, but of course he had his own life as an enslaved person and a great abolitionist. He, he, he gave a vision uh, that uh, uh, I, th I think is to me a, like a Buddhist vision. And it's kind of reflected in, you know, Reverend uh, Imamura Emio's uh, comments about the hybrid, hy hybrid and mixed race. Like, you know, today Japanese Americans uh, are about 50%, 1.3 million Japanese Americans, about 50% are multiracial, Black and Japanese, Latino, Latino Japanese, the white and Japanese, lots of different mix, mixture of people. And that orientation towards hybridity, mixture, uh, and, and not about some kind of purity and protection of it, uh, because I think we Buddhists recognize uh, the interlinked nature of reality. We recognize the dynamic impermanence and change of, 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 of people, of artificial categories like race. So I think there's a way to talk about America that is not uh, about exclusion and about purity and about, uh, um, but, but, but one about America as a nation of becoming a nation of, of, of uh, uh, plurality and, and, and composed of people of different uh, uh, backgrounds. And so what I want to do today is talk a little bit about 
what I'm trying to do recently to, to think about issues about Buddhist approaches to race relations, to reparations, to uh, remembrance about America's racial history. Uh, and uh, this particular project I'm doing about names and about building a names monument for people like Reverend uh, Kenko Yamashita and his wife, and even uh, his daughter is still, you know, she was born in camp, but she's still alive. I'm making a monument to uh, all, all of the people who experienced um, incarceration back in World War II as a kind of Buddhist, mm, just one, pro like a Buddhist project for remembrance and reparation. So before I talk about that in particular, I want to kind of zone out for a second and talk about kind of ways that we, you know, what are the tools we have and the ways to see things analytically from a Buddhist uh, perspective when it comes to trying to reflect on and reckon with America's racial past and where we are in the present. And I think because you know, you're, you're at San Francisco, you, you, this is not uh, news, but uh, we have you know, two major you know, lines of thinking in Buddhism, uh, one represented by Majamaka and uh, kind of deconstruction into emptiness and the other represented uh, by Yogacara and uh, 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 mind only and, 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 and the kind of uh, idea of, of uh, being able to imagine uh, worlds. And so we, we, on the one hand, you know, every day we, we, we chant, whether in Japanese or I guess in the English way, you may also chant this, uh, uh, no eyes or ears, no, all of the, the no's in our tradition, uh, the, 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 the negation and the, and the deconstruction of things we imagine to be real or solid or permanent, or we, we deconstruct it. So that's the, you know, from Nagarjuna on, very important line of thinking in our lineage. Uh, and then we also have, as you, as you can see uh, here in the uh, quotation from uh, uh, Pratyupana Samadhi, that we also have a lineage of thinking that because it's empty, our world is uh, playful and we can imagine things. And in fact, imagination is a creativity, is a kind of a major way to also get past our karmic, you know, things we inherit as uh, stuck things, stereotypes and uh, artificial notions of things that uh, sometimes uh, having a, some creative or imaginative way is uh, also a very important way to to freedom. So we have two styles of of, of analysis, and 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 so what I want to do today is kind of maybe lean, uh, well, talk a little bit about these two things, as as and then lean into one uh, a little bit more. So. On the emptiness side, this is something, and this is how I'm gonna, eventually I'm gonna connect it to why ancestors and whatnot. But in our own lineage, you know, in Soto Shu lineage, we have idea of emptiness or empty circle as the circle before, you know, Shakamuni Daiyosho, Makakasho Daisho, the Ananda, that we chant all these names in our lineage and that, uh, and that uh, we understand ourselves to be in some kind of uh, 
line of transmission and line of teaching and line of uh, 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 that 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 is that is uh, that is uh, ultimately also linked to to uh, to uh, the empty circle, and so uh, you know we 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 have many many how should we say teachings and images from our history and our lineage. Uh, very, of course, famously beyond Kichimeko is, is, is uh, uh, the Tenoxerding uh, pictures, and we see the Enso there, and very important, you know, kind of uh, uh, commentary about the, about the um, uh, how ultimately uh, uh, we we join the ancestors when we when we uh, 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 understand this aspect of. Of uh, uh, of ourselves and 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 then, but that that but that uh, also, we are also uh, uh, just as we are, and uh, we are also uh, as we come in in our particular karmic uh, uh, you know formations, and so uh, I've been trying to think out of all of that, how to think about reparations, racial reparations, how to deal with. When I say all of that we hold, I mean like, uh, so you know, we have a book club that I've been running with another professor in African-American studies and so forth. But then uh, he, this is a, the, what I wanted to try to link it back to lineage and ancestors and uh, why we sh should care about the karmic you know, imprints that we receive from those who have come. Uh, before, and and this is a photo. Well, one is about this uh, in Little Tokyo. A group of Buddhist people got together uh, uh, in the in the period when when uh, we were uh, how should we say uh, linking what Asian American people and also uh, uh, other Buddhist people in general can can say and do. Regarding the uh, issue of, of police violence and uh, uh, Black Lives, that 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 uh, that discussion, and I, you can see on the left hand side, I've got a, a certificate in my hand. It's a naturalization certificate, and it was actually in the midst of the, all of the protests that was going on uh, on of all days. Uh, it's a kind of goen or karmic. Uh, I don't know, mysterious karmic causes and conditions. But uh, on Juneteenth uh, of, of 2020, I became a U.S. citizen. And, uh, you know, that day is really about the history of delay, right? That news about the abolition of slavery gets to text, that part of Texas a little bit late. And there's always this kind of story about America aspires to certain ideals, but it's late in getting there. Uh, and the, or it takes time, and 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 and, and um, uh, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot about about citizenship, especially you know because I'm a new citizen, and uh, is uh, these uh, comments I sometimes get from inside you know immigrant groups and communities like. 
Hey, Doug, I know you're talking a lot about America's racial past, but we weren't, you know, our ancestors weren't involved with that. We weren't enslaved people. We weren't slave owners. We weren't this. So why should we care about those type of issues? We have enough problems as, you know, so, so, so I've been thinking about that a lot. Why should any, everybody these days still care about the legacy of uh, racism, how it's embedded and structured into even, you know, they had these enduring qualities that prop, kind of pop up again and again, even in our current times. Why should we care about all of this? And uh, it's a big coin, you know, it's, it's a good question. And so I've been talking a lot with uh, Larry Ward, one, one of the teachers in the uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, Plum Village uh, lineage. And we've been doing a lot of meetings and uh, thinking through, he wrote a very, very nice book. I'm gonna recommend to everybody if you haven't read it. It's called America's Racial Karma. Um, but the, the term, the karma of a nation, it originally, I, I learned about it some, you know, many years ago when I was doing research for American Sutra uh, about uh, a term, this term that was raised by Reverend uh, Kyoshiro Tokunaga of San Jose Buddhist Temple's Jodoshishi Temple in, in the Bay Area. And uh, he, uh, like Reverend Yamashita, was taken right by the FBI uh, to one of these internment camps. And he was very ill on the train ride. And one of the uh, African-American train porters kind of nursed him back to health. And also during that time, talk, they had a had chance to talk about you know, what was happening and reflecting on different communities, uh, uh, you know, experience of, of uh, racial discrimination and so forth. And uh, after the war, he went to the same camp as uh, Reverend Yamashita in Texas. And at that time, they had, I guess, trains were like segregated into black and white, and he didn't know which section to go to. But because of his conversation with Blackport, he went to the black section. And uh, after the war, he would talk a lot uh, about this idea the, that it's not just individuals, but that nations have a karma and that we inherit that. Uh, and so when I think about things as a newer citizen, I talk to different people about what have they inherited in their minds and in their bodies, both the positive things as well as negative things that we inherit from those who've come before us, our ancestors. Uh, what can we do to, to take all of those ingredients and in, you know, Dogen Senzo Kyokun way, cook it into something worthy. And so when, uh, you know, as you know, I mentioned earlier, we had a vandalism at our own temple, uh, you know, neighborhood temple and uh, in Orange County, a few miles south from us, uh, six different temples were vandalized and, what do you call it? Graffiti was put on the statuaries outside. Some people put Jesus on the back of the uh, one of the statues. Um, you know, people like in your neighborhood in San Francisco, you, many people saw that security camera footage from earlier in the year uh, about the Wichao Ratanapakti and the being a kind of attacked senselessly, uh, Thai community coming, you know, Buddhist community coming around to help the family and and the Atlanta shoot, there's so many things that have been happening. And I realized that one of the things that uh, we often face in these things is because Asian people or black people, like somehow is seen as some kind of 
amorphous group. Remember those like that that wall, like these heathens that are coming. Like it's just it's like nobody can attend to people carefully as a jewel in the jewel net of Indra. But it's just this murky, you know. So it's not as particulars. But and so there's a whole history, at, at least with Japanese Americans and Asian American, you know, of like during the camp days, you just a number, you get a tag with a number on it. Uh, the other things are called bongo. They, these, you know, the first Japanese that came to America and settled in Hawaiian Islands, they work on the sugar plantation. N nobody cared about their names. They just, you know, just was a number, 405, 7369, like that. And so I started thinking these days, you know, about uh, say their name, like a lot of importance about the uh, names uh, in one of the most important books on black reparations uh, by um, uh, A. Kirsten Mullen and, and William Darity um, from Duke, uh, from Here to Equality, they, they put the uh, photograph of the names of those who experienced racial terrorism uh, in the American South in the form of uh, lynching. And this is a so-called national, you know, formerly the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, but informally and more commonly known as the lynching memorial in, 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 uh, in Alabama, uh, where, you know, the names from each of these different counties uh, in the American South where lynching happened there, they did the research to find out the names and honor the uh, individuals, you know, not just a mass of people, individuals who experience uh, this kind of thing. And this is the kind of way of doing, you know, there's reparations in the kind of like Christian sense, there's reparations in the kind of fiscal sense. Uh, uh, but I think there's something a little bit different about this kind of reparations, about remembrance and honoring and ancestors. Um, so when I say Christian sense, I, I mean like, Originally, the word reparation comes from the, you know, the Catholic tradition, uh, reparations for the mass of Christ, you know, in the, in, in the French uh, uh, late medieval period, there are lots of these things to atone for original sin, the idea of that. And, you know, Martin Luther King often referred to that kind of idea of a slavery as America's original sin, uh, the need for uh, recompense fiscally, you know, 40 meals on acres and a meal, but that, that check it bounce. So there's many things that refer back to that kind of idea, but I think there's a different way that we can, as Buddhist people, understand reparations and racial repair work that is not Christian-based, or isn't based on some kind of idea of this is the originary. Because I'm always like, well, wait a second, Genocide of Native American, you know, that's earlier than, say, you know, translating slave trade. Like, it's it's not like well, there's one only one singular thing. It's a bunch of interlinked histories uh, that constitute uh, America's racial past, and we need to think in multiplicity and not as some kind of singular origin, as in, you know, I think a more Christian way of thinking, and so. I've been thinking about names in terms of, you know, Buddhist practice of nembutsu. Uh, of course, in Sotoshu, we don't uh, chant in quite the same way uh, as uh, my colleagues in Jodoshu or Jodoshinshu or whatever. But uh, 
you know, in their lineage, so important. Uh, and we do it too, uh, where uh, we chant the names of the Buddhas. We also chant every morning the names of all the ancestors in our lineage. And, uh, you know, originally, put on Smirti, the idea of Anusmirti, the, the, the originally Nen meant to, to visualize, to make appear by your imagination the Buddha who is no longer there. Because the Buddha, you know, was there and then left teachings but died. And so we sometimes take refuge in the teaching, you know, Dharma, but we also try to recall and say the name of the Buddha to, you know, make the Buddha alive today. And so it's a Buddha of our past, but it's also our own Buddha. We come to, come to actualize it uh, when, we, when, we, when we utter things. Uh, so this is the power, you know, in also our Sotoshi tradition. So we have very strong influence from, from uh, uh, mantra, mantra, Mantrayana and, 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 and esoteric Buddhist uh, lineage tradition of utterance as a way to make something absent, real, manifest, actualized. So that's why uh, some of you from San Francisco also joined me, you know, when we went to do some protests some years ago now, uh, when the former Japanese American internment camp was going to be used for uh, Central American migrant children. Uh, uh, more recently, Fort Bliss in Texas, and then earlier, this was Fort Sill in Oklahoma. Uh, we went to say the names of the people who uh, passed away back in World War II in that camp, shot by guards and that kind of thing, and worried about children and others who've lost their lives in uh, Border Patrol and ICE detention facilities today, because these exclusions around religion when it comes to you know, travel bans around Muslims or, or race when it comes to the same kind of fears of migrant caravans invading America on the American you know, southern border. This is kind of history repeating itself. And so we have held many ceremonies. This is at, uh, uh, in Little Tokyo ceremony where we did ceremonies for, for uh, different uh, groups of people individuals who we named uh, after we chant our sutras, we dedicate uh, the merit, any, any positive merit to, to the people uh, and have their names uh, uh, be highlighted. And so this gets me to what I'm trying to build, uh, some kind of monument uh, of all the people like Reverend Yamashita who back in World War II experienced incarceration. This is a picture of Reverend uh, Shinjo Nagatomi. He's the father of my uh, mentor and teacher in Buddhist studies at Harvard University when I was a graduate student. Uh, uh, he, his father, I started that pro American Sutras project because I found this man's World War II diaries from Manzanar in my professor's uh, office uh, after my professor suddenly passed away. And I translated for the family and that became this almost like 17 year process of trying to write that book to honor Reverend Nagatomi. He was at the time, one of the only Buddhist priests in this camp called Manzanar in California. And uh, he was performing so many funerals and memorial services because those barracks were very hastily built and poorly constructed and so many babies and 
elderly people passing away that first winter into spring. And for Obom period, which I think, you know, all of you know, in summertime, we have a major ritual for ancestors and um, remembering, especially we call it Nibon, the first Obon of people who've passed away that previous year. He wanted to build a monument and it's called the Ireto. Uh, to means tower, I means uh, to console, and Re means the spirits. The spirits, you know, of the recently deceased as well as the ancestors. And uh, he wanted to build this and the Young Buddhist Association uh, kind of bu built it out of concrete uh, and he dedicated uh, on Obon of 1943, this monument. And so in honor of this monument, which still stands in the California desert, uh, in the cemetery section of that camp, one of the only things that survived from the period, um, in kind of inspired by that, I'm trying to build a physical installation, true, but also a book of names, uh, just like we have, you know, I, I don't know if at Zen Center you have the same thing, but most uh, temples uh, in Lotor, we, we have our kakocho on the right-hand side of the altar. It's the book of names of the temple members who, you know, we, we do shotsukiho, like a monthly memorial service. We read after the sutras, we, all the names of the people, for example, passed away in November. We read all the names from founding of the temple to now. And, and, and so we have a tradition of putting names in books as a kind of sacred act of remembrance. And by uttering their names, we kind of recall them back uh, into the present moment. And so I wanted to build a website, an actual physical monument uh, where we project the names and so on and so forth. Uh, I won't go into so much detail and I, and I want to make sure I leave time for questions. So I'll stop talking, I, I promise. But uh, 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 during World War II, these, this, the one in Manzanar is on the right from more present times and then the uh, rower one built by Reverend uh, Hayashima Daitetsu, uh, uh, another Buddhist priest uh, in the uh, Arkansas uh, uh, cemetery of the camps uh, there. Uh, these type of uh, structures, I'm, I'm using it to kind of help uh, design a new monument uh, where uh, we will kind of uh, using light projection over a one hour period show the names of 125,000 approximately uh, individuals uh, to, uh, to, to kind of recall this history. And we are going to make it in a cer ceramic form uh, and uh, build it like the Ireto of Manzanar, but with cracks built into the ceramic to recall a way of thinking about repair work that is from a very long Buddhist and Japanese cultural kind of uh, heritage. And so I think many of you know, you know, in the pottery world or uh, ceramics world uh, that uh, we have a repair tradition called kintsugi. Uh, tsugi comes from the verb tsugu, uh, to join, uh, or in this case, rejoin. Um, and then kim means gold. But it's the practice of when, you know, if you have a tea ceremony cup that you break or uh, favorite plate or anything, it doesn't have, you know, it, but it's uh, something that you, it seems wrong to throw away. We try to repair it and we use the lacquer to do the rejoining. And then on top of the 
rejoined cracks, put the, put the line it with gold. And to me, this is a metaphor for a Buddhist way of thinking about reparations, because it's, it's a way of saying reparations must start with, with a reckoning with, you know, hurt and breakage and fissures and, and, and that we're not going to hide away or look away from it, but in fact, we're going to refix it, repair it, heal it, and enhance it with gold. Gold, you know, of course, in the fiscal sense of fiduciary type of reparations, but gold in the sense of it's not something we shy away from, but we, we highlight and enhance. And so, you know, Dogen Zenji uh, Shisho, uh, you know, one of the chapter fascicles uh, we, I think, may have, have, have studied. Uh, he has an uh, important uh, uh, comment about uh, his own understanding of, of um, what we receive from ancestors. And uh, he's in this uh, quote, he's talking about meeting, you know, one of his teachers in, in, in China and um, being shown a particular kind of uh, transmission document uh, that says the first ancestor, Mahakashapa, was awakened by Shakyamuni Buddha. Shakyamuni Buddha was awakened by Ka uh, Kashapa Buddha. And then he, he, he says this is something really moving for him to understand what is the authentic way of transmission and what is the way uh, uh, that the Buddha ancestors come to help the, a descendant. And uh, it uh, kind of raises the question of who is doing the teaching and who is doing the receiving and who is, and how should we say, you know, we do recitation of names at memorial services, or we make, we make these uh, things when, you know, one of our temple family, we lose a family member or, uh, or it's a memorial, so it might be seventh year anniversary or 13th year or something. And, uh, and uh, it seems like our rituals are supposed to be, we chant and create merit of different kinds and we transfer to the ancestors. And so we're trying to like assist them. But I think what Dogen is intimating and what I think we kind of all know is that sometimes when we do the ceremony, it's not about what are we doing to help people of the past? That's true, we do some things. By doing some things now, we can actually change not the future, not only the future, but the past. But also the past can come to assist us. The ancestors can come to help descendants. And, uh, but we have to do some ceremony, some ritual, some way of recognizing our people who come before us. And uh, so, and e even recognizing things that uh, may not be perfect, may not be uh, easy, may not be, uh, may even be hurtful or harmful for our mind or our body. How can we take that and transform, transform and heal it uh, is, uh, to me, a big question for us, uh, of course, talking about race in America and so on. But in general, more general 
how can we take the imprints that our parents or our other ancestors uh, imprinted on us and their expectations, hopes? How do we take that and you know transmit what's useful and transform what's what's uh, you know not helpful, that's nonsense or problematic? How can we heal that, transform it? And so, to me, it's like uh, you know when we do the for, for Bodhisattva Great Vows, uh, that's the first line. Sentient beings are uh, numberless, yet we vow to liberate all. It means that uh, it's, a, it's one line that suggests like, oh, we are the doing the vow, or we are doing the liberating. But actually, for this process to work, as Dogen is into me, sometimes, yes, we assist and we we, count, we figure out how many hands we have, thousand arms of count, like how many eyes and hands, and we try to, but other times we're the recipient, we're the, we being helped, ancestors are helping us, other beings are helping us all the time, and we have to recognize that too. And so sometimes you have to be the recipient for somebody else to be the Bodhisattva, and sometimes we take that role and we flip back and forth uh, uh, freely. And so that's the kind of work we may need to do to, in ceremony, in our thinking, in how we, how we take all of this karma that we have inherited. Um, you know, I think this formula I, I use for my youth classes, uh, you know, we have a young people, high schoolers, and we're like, I would say Buddhism is uh, uh, wisdom times uh, compassion equals freedom. Very simple, like formulaic way of talking about Buddhism. But uh, uh, I would say in America, let's use the word freedom because American people, uh, if you use awakening, enlightenment, liberty, they may not, but if you say freedom, nobody be against it. So let's say that, that that's the goal of our, our lineage and our, Buddh our Buddhist faith, but that we have two big, you know, messages. One is about seeing things correctly. So that's wisdom. And then having the heart to feel each other's pain and joy and everything, uh, compassion. And so we have to multiply that together to, you know, like a two wings of a bird to fly to, to, to the sky or to freedom. And so sometimes it's about perspectival change that, that something can change sometimes karma we can we can handle it by just reframing or just changing something and other times it's about the feeling we have with each other as a interlinked you know uh, sangha or community uh, and so maybe with that i will just uh, end my random thoughts thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the san francisco zen center our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, please visit sfzc.org and click Giving. May we fully enjoy the Dharma.